From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It may be a leaked draft, but Coloradans are mobilizing as if Roe v. Wade is over. We'll hear from two of them today, an abortion opponent who now wants a federal ban on the procedure, and an abortion rights activist who says it's time to enshrine protections in the state constitution. Then, it remains an elusive diagnosis, but learning she had fibromyalgia gave Kaj Barber something to focus on after a life of chronic pain. It gave me something to try and understand because I'm a puzzle solver. So I was like, ooh, a puzzle. Barbara and I quiz a rheumatologist about the latest treatments. Some of these medicines are used in psychiatry widely to treat depression because they share the same pathways in the brain. I'm Claire from Castle Rock. I'm from Longmont, Colorado. I'm from Fruta. From Wheat Ridge. From Sedalia. Genesee. Kiowa. My wife and I live in Boulder. In Grand Junction. Carbondale. Frankstown. Windsor, Colorado. Hi, this is Amanda in Loveland, and I support Colorado Public Radio because it is just that. It's publicly funded by the people who listen to it, and I think that should be very valued in our society today. It's easy to donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A formal ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court on abortion won't come for a little while, but activists are already mobilizing after that leaked draft decision overturning Roe v. Wade. How are they mobilizing? That's where we'll begin today's show. In a few minutes, you'll hear from a woman who has fought for abortion access for a long time, including a new state law that protects it. First, Jeff Hunt of the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. He has long been committed to overturning Roe. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Ryan. It's been quite a a few uh, days here. (laughs) Uh, Indeed, some big news. And I wonder, when you looked at this draft opinion, written by Justice Alito. Was there any line, any portion of it that stood out to you? What really struck me that I appreciated was Justice Alito's focus on ordered liberty. We don't just get to do whatever we want in this country. It's not unlimited liberty. It's not unlimited freedom. Oftentimes you have compelling interests at stake. And that's the case with abortion. You have the woman's right to choose, in contrast with the baby's right to life. And how do we navigate when you have compelling interests in opposition to each other under the auspice of liberty in this nation? I appreciated him going deep on that issue because uh, I've wrestled with that on Colorado legalizing uh, drugs, doctor-assisted suicide, that there are consequences to our actions. And we, we as Coloradans need to come to terms with that. Nothing is ever done in a bubble. Nothing's done just of our own volition. There are consequences in just about every action out there. So we need to balance and weigh competing in And in this case, the right to life trumps any other compelling interest. So you talk about the first word there, order, ordered liberty. Is it a lack of order to overturn 50 years of court precedent? Is it a bit of a a judicial free-for-all at this point? 
That's a really good question, Ryan. So, and the decision gets into this. How important is stare decisis? Well, it's really important for a lot of cases out there. It is important in creating order in our judicial system. But they go on to point out at least three cases where the decision was wrong and needed to be rectified. Now, you can rectify a Supreme Court decision in different ways. You can do it through a law. You can do it through a constitutional amendment. But they felt that the arguments for Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey were on the wrong merits. They were not on a strong foundation. And as a result, there was an equal consequence of disorder to our nation. States could not draft abortion prevention laws or abortion restriction laws prior to viability. So uh, there was an equal disorder that was taking place that they were wrestling through in the Supreme Court decision. I think they came out on the right side, which allows states to make their own decisions. And this is really important. The state of Colorado has shown even though I passionately disagreed with it and was down there until four or five in the morning, fought it, led rallies against it. But the state of Colorado showed that if you want to codify into law abortion rights, you can do that. This is an interesting point, Jeff Hunt. You're saying then that the effect of this Supreme Court ruling, uh, should it actually be the ruling, leaves this up to the states, including Colorado. So do I hear then that it is not going to be your goal to get a federal abortion ban after this? Oh, no, that's not my goal. <laughs> I, uh, I, when you have the right to life at stake, I think that there is a compelling federal interest to protect that. So uh, while states will be able to come up with their own uh, laws, and believe me, this is we even have division within the pro-life community on this, okay? So there are some that goes, this should be a state's. If you look at the Constitution, there's no right to life in the Constitution, so we should allow states to come up with their own opinions and laws on this. But, you know, I would like to see a constitutional amendment that protects the right to life or federal law that protects the right to life. So I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm not solely into the camp that we should just leave this to a state's issue. And so that does put you at odds with what voters in Colorado and their representatives have decided over and over again. I mean, this has been tested at the ballot many, many times that is, abortion bans or personhood amendments, and those have all failed. Um, So talk to me about the tension between what you see for the country and what Coloradans keep saying. Well, for those of us that are committed to justice, this is something we keep working on. You labor on this until the very end of your life. This is something that's core to who we are and believe, and we believe that we're here to try to make a difference on that. So uh, whether or not we lose battles, it's hard. It's not pleasant by any means. We put a lot of effort into these, but uh, we're going to continue to do our work. Now, it's important to point out that in Proposition 115, which banned late-term abortion, it did not pass, but I believe it was the first vote to ever get above a million votes in the state of Colorado in restriction to abortion. So in many ways, kind of trending I'm more optimistic about the direction that we trend, but we've got a lot of work to do. Colorado's a socially libertarian state. So here I am saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't be legalizing drugs. Maybe we shouldn't be (laughs) engaging in doctor-assisted suicide. Uh, Maybe we shouldn't be decriminalizing psychedelic mushrooms. You know, I I, I recognize that I have a bit of a a voice crying out in the wilderness approach to Colorado, but that's why I like to be here. I grew up in Colorado, and we're going to continue to do our work. I'll tell you, the pro-life community, we did a call, a conference call 
following this. Mm -hmm. uh, we did uh, pro-life leaders here in Colorado did a conference call. And we recognize that we've got a lot of work to do. We recognize that we're going to have a lot of people traveling to Colorado to get abortion. So how are we going to serve those women that are coming in to encourage them not to abort their child, maybe look at alternatives to Planned Parenthood? So there's an education and a service component to that. But we're also looking at lawsuits over the current law. Uh, we think there's three particular areas that are problematic in the law that was recently passed in Colorado, the, the radical abortion bill. One is that it does not bode well for laws when you specifically carve out rights against a class of people. So if you say a class of people, in this case, the pre-born, do not have rights in the state, that does not work well in constitutional law. And we may challenge it there. We're going to look at challenging it on uh, the capacity that localities can't keep a Planned Parenthood out of their neighborhoods anymore. Colorado is a local control state. And now this law comes along and says you cannot interfere in any capacity with a woman's right to choose. That means uh, if they want to put a Planned Parenthood in your neighborhood, well, you're going to be forced to do that. We think that's a legal question. And then freedom of conscience for doctors and nurses and first responders. Are they going to be forced to provide services related to abortion against their will? So we think that there's three good places to challenge this law legally. Uh, we're going to be serving the women that come into the state and let me and just encouraging say that, them not to that, abort. That's the Re Reproductive Health Equity Act. So right. there is a saying, Jeff Hunt, that you never ban abortion. You just ban the safe ones. Before we go, address that for me. The idea that history shows us that abortion bans lead to women's deaths frankly. Yeah, I, I don't agree that... with that. I, I think Texas is showcasing that, uh, that that's not the case. We're not seeing a lot of women dying in back alley abortions. But I, I, I think what's really important, especially for the pro-life movement, is to demonstrate that we can provide better care, a better future, a better hope for people that are facing a crisis pregnancy than an abortion. And there are so many opportunities out there. There's adoption, there's uh, safe haven laws. Uh, but I think it's important for the pro-life community to demonstrate we're here to serve, we're here to care, we're here to provide services, and not just uh, an abortion service and then you're kind of out the door type of thing. Thank you, Jeff, for being with us. Ryan, thanks so much for having me on. And thank you to all the CPR listeners. We're grateful for you all. Jeff Hunt directs the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. He opposes abortion rights. Now an abortion rights activist in Colorado, Karen Middleton is president of Cobalt. Karen, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me today. Was there a line in the draft opinion that stood out to you? You know, I really reflected on the the opening statement uh, where Justice Alito begins with abortion presents a profound moral issue on which Americans hold sharply conflicting views. And why does that line stand out to you? The line stands out to me because a majority of Americans hold the views that legal abortion is settled law. A moral conflict and what is settled law are two different things. And most people either support access to abortion or do not believe government should be interfering in someone's choice to have an abortion. Do you think that the left and the right agree on the fact that abortions, as much as possible, should be rare? I do not. The number of abortions have gone down in the United States because of access to effective contraception, birth control, but I don't think rare makes sense because there are too many cases that you and I can't predict, and the option should be left to the people who need to make those decisions for themselves. And so you think that the Supreme Court, if this 
draft stands is out of sync with the majority of America. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes. The draft is just that, a draft. Chief Justice John Roberts said a decision has not yet been made regarding the case. But do you assume this is going to be either the final outcome or close to it? I mean, as you strategize. Absolutely. And I've been planning for months, believing that this was the outcome. Cobalt, your organization, used to be a part of NARAL, Pro-Choice America, a national organization. And I just note that on its website, there's a banner with a, a call to arms for emergency donations saying reproductive freedom is under immediate and direct threat. Is that Cobalt's mindset as well? Cobalt has been moving in this direction for years, and so we're pretty ready for it. Certainly more resources to support the ongoing work makes sense, but we're in this for the long haul. We believe we need to protect reproductive rights over the long haul. And yes, this is a setback, but it is not a complete setback, at least for Colorado. And we will be able to move forward from this, mobilizing uh, voters to really uh, go for a change for the long term. Okay, well, let's talk about strategy moving forward then. Uh, You said in Colorado, the picture is a bit different than it is in other states. Say more about that. Colorado uh, decriminalized abortion in 1967. So we were the first state in the country to do so. And we have had a very strong and consistent view of government stay out of our business regarding abortions. We have defeated numerous ballot measures. So voters in Colorado have talked about abortion, voted on abortion, and have said no to restricting abortion going back many years and as recently as 2020. And I think voters are pretty consistent that they don't believe that government interference should be a part of this. State lawmakers as well passed a law in anticipation of this potential Supreme Court ruling that enshrined abortion access into state law. I gather you have that on the mind as well. Absolutely. The Reproductive Health Equity Act uh, was just signed into law about a month ago, which was very timely. And it affirms what we know Colorado voters believe, which is that abortion should be protected here in the state of Colorado. And regardless of what happens with the U.S. Supreme Court, that we believe this is a fundamental right. But you think that there ought to be a state constitutional amendment to this effect. Do I understand that right? Correct. Uh, We actually have a constitutional state funding ban that was passed in 1984. So one of the largest barriers for people who um, want to access abortion is cost. Uh, Low-income people, people of color, um, immigrants have a lot of trouble accessing abortion care. And so... And the idea there is that state funding cannot be used for abortions. Correct. And not just Medicaid for abortion care or any kind of abortion care, but also if you're a state employee, you might not be able to have abortion included in your insurance plan. There may be other restrictions that go beyond just Medicaid funding. Are you seeking to undo that then? We are indeed. Okay. Through a constitutional amendment. Yes. We're looking at doing this in 2024. And our aim is to repeal the language that is currently in the Constitution that creates this ban and insert some affirmative language that might reflect something that looks like REA. Uh, That is to say the Reproductive Act that was just passed by state lawmakers. Yes. Which is, again, statute. And this would be putting it into the state Constitution. Why should public dollars potentially fund abortions when there are no doubt Coloradans who believe that abortion is wrong? You know, abortion is part of 
health care and part of reproductive health care. And if you have every other procedure in health care covered and this one is outside of that, particularly when it could be life-saving, particularly someone on Medicaid may have made the decision that they can't afford to have another family member right now, that it shouldn't be you and me making that decision. And so we believe that we should have that funding available for people who most need it. Colorado is surrounded by states that have made different decisions on abortion. If this becomes a state-by-state issue, do you expect Colorado to become something of a destination for those seeking abortions? Yes. Yes. Have you already seen that? Yes. Um, We were always seeing maybe 10 to 12 percent of people coming from out of state, particularly people who needed to access abortion later in pregnancy from states that were more restrictive. We now are seeing a lot more people coming from out of state, particularly because abortion is banned so early in pregnancy in many states that you were often coming here because you had a complication with your pregnancy further along and you had no other choice and you had to come here. Is there the infrastructure to support an even greater influx? I believe there will be. We have been preparing for some time. We have been working with the clinics that provide care. We are working with abortion funding, and we are going to continue to try to coordinate to make sure we don't turn anyone away. You mentioned voters just a bit ago. How much does this change the midterms, do you think? I think it will have a dramatic effect on midterms. And I say that because I believe a majority of Americans did not expect this decision, did not believe it would be coming to pass. I have so many surprised texts and emails from people who said, I never thought they would overturn Roe v. Wade. It's been here for more than 50 years. What about a federal ban? In other words, what we have spoken of so far assumes that states get to decide what they want. What is also possible is a congressional ban on abortions that would make any state move moot. Is that part of the fight? I think it will have to be, but I will say that I think that there is enough broad public support that I think it would be a mistake to try to pass a federal ban in Congress. Um, Conversely, there is a Women's Health Protection Act, which is a proactive bill that has already passed the U.S. House and is sitting in the Senate. And moving forward there ahead of any effort for a federal ban would be a much preferred outcome, although not necessarily possible this year. One more piece of potential legislation, but this is through the initiative petition process. Anti-abortion activists are gathering signatures for number 56 in Colorado, which would criminalize most abortions in this state. You have said that there's a history of voters routinely voting down those sorts of things in Colorado. Given what momentum there might be from the Supreme Court, are you worried about number 56? I should always be worried when there's a a ballot measure that could ban abortion, but I believe that public support is with us, and I think that they will see this for what it is, an attempt to ban abortion in a state that has consistently said no, and it will be defeated. It will also be a way for us to organize as we move toward 2024. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Karen Middleton is president of Cobalt, which fights for abortion access. Earlier, we heard an opposing view from Jeff Hunt of the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour as our series On Pain takes on the still elusive diagnosis of fibromyalgia. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News. I worked through my anger, my rage about it. I don't feel that now. 
Pianist and composer Mary D. Watkins remembers when Emmett Till was lynched in Mississippi, 1955. She was a kid in Pueblo, around Till's age. Watkins' new opera is a tribute to Till and to his mother. It was almost like I could send my blessing to his mother, Mamie Till, and to him. Hear the story at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We've been listening to Coloradans who experience chronic pain. And a theme has emerged, that the search for relief is often long and exhausting, even painful in and of itself. Yet hope lingers that just around the corner, a diagnosis or treatment awaits. For Kosh Barber of Denver, that diagnosis was an increasingly common one, fibromyalgia. And while it was reassuring to have a name for her condition, it's often an elusive one. A little later, Barbara helps us quiz a doctor about treatment and research. First, her own story in our series on pain. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'd like you to take us back to when you were 13. I understand that you were in excruciating pain, and you would try to come up with metaphors Yes. To, to describe it, what were some of those metaphors? So it was easier to paint people a picture because I'm kind of good with words. So when I would try and explain to the doctor what the pain was like, because I called them ghost pains, because you couldn't really palpate it or find an actual pain. So I it would, was elusive. Yeah. So I would explain to the doctor, like, imagine you have a rusty saw that's dull, sawing your bones. How did it affect your young life at that point? Being that there was no solutions for it, it was difficult. In the earlier stages, it was more so it's all in your head. So it was no... You would hear that from professionals? The doctors would tell me, look, we can't find anything. We've ran every test physically possible. I went through MRIs. CT scans, blood work, always, constantly, I was being poked and prodded. Test results, I was healthy as a horse. But I'm like, there's pain. There's real pain. I can't get out of bed in the morning. There were times where I felt like parts of my skin was on fire, like someone had a match to my skin. It was draining. Did your parents understand? Did your family? So I was on my own, and I didn't have anyone. There was no support. Oh. It was just me. So how, how young were you when you were on your own? Um, I've been on my own since I was about 10. I mean, I had family, but it was not like close-knit. It was someone there caring for me pretty much. One thing we've heard in this series a lot, Kaj, is how isolating pain can be. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that when you were young, you were already perhaps feeling isolated in that environment. Yes. Might the pain have added to that sense of isolation, that sense of you're on your own? I don't think in the earlier years, because in that point of life, I was kind of in like fight or flight. Mm. And I think that that maybe contributed to a lot of my pain moments. The stress um, yes. of life. Yes, yes. But I can say later on in life, when I started to understand what was going on, yes, it was very isolating because in the beginning stages, when you told people you had fibromyalgia, it was 
seen as a mental disorder, not a pain disorder. That word, fibromyalgia. Oh, it was... It's a lot of syllables. <laughs> you know, this this word, it's like, um, I've been trying to wrap my own head around it. What was the first time you heard it, fibromyalgia? The first time I heard fibromyalgia, I may have been 14. And I was still being seen at Denver Health. I think it was probably Denver General at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... It was kind of thrown out there, like, well, we think that it could be this, but it was just thrown out there, never said anything about it again. So I would ask other medical professionals. There was no internet at the time, so (laughs) I was not Googling anything. (laughs) Um, So I tried to learn all that I could. Um, you became, in fact, fascinated as yes. a young person with anatomy yes. as a way of understanding your own body. Yes. Yeah. I had to because I was not being heard. Um, I don't know if it was because I was young, but I knew that there was something wrong. So I took it upon myself to learn all that I could about the human body so I can understand how my body was working. I think I was maybe... 17 or 18 when I was actually diagnosed with fibromyalgia. fibromyalgia. So I had been bounced around from doctor to doctor. And it got to the point where I started to feel like I was crazy because I'm like, you're telling me there's nothing wrong with me. So could I possibly be mentally ill? And I was like, no, (laughs) like I know my body. So I actually. And there weren't other signs of mental illness I'm gathering. I had had no other, and there was no clear diagnosis of what my mental illness was. So so even that was its own mm-hmm. stumping search. Gave more stress. <laughs> well, so I'm imagining you doing all kinds of research. And when you heard that word fibromyalgia, did it give you something to hang your head on? Did it give you something to look up? It did. It gave me something to try and understand because I'm a puzzle solver. So I was like, ooh, a puzzle. So it gave me something to hold on to instead of we don't know what's going on because that was difficult. And there was lots of we don't know. When I look up fibromyalgia today, because I do have Google now, (laughs) (laughs) unlike yourself back in the day, even today, it seems vague to me (laughs) as a non-medical professional What about it fit? In the beginning stages of them learning about fibromyalgia, there was a checklist. And if you had, I think, 11 tender points on your body, you had fibromyalgia. Hmm. But a lot of the stuff that you searched at that time was all regurgitated information. So literally everything that you saw said exactly the same thing. So it's like, what is it? Hmm. Where does it come from? You know, why am I experiencing this? So it sounds like you got a diagnosis, but the diagnosis itself was young and fledgling and not well understood. Well, it wasn't necessarily a diagnosis at that moment in the beginning. It was we think that it could be this because I was also diagnosed with lupus and MS before I was ever officially diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Neither of those are light diagnoses. They're not. I mean, those are life-altering. Yes. Did either of them turn out to be true? Uh, Neither of them turned out to be true. And for the first 
three years, I want to say, before finding out that it was actually fibromyalgia, I was kind of living my life as if I had MS or lupus. And I was a young mother, a single young mother. I was still in school, raising three children. To get a diagnosis of lupus and MS in that point in life is almost devastating. So again, there's more stress added onto that. And right, and if stress was a trigger, my mm-hmm. goodness, talk about a feedback loop. I can tell you that the tension in my body was so strong that my trapezius muscles set almost under my ears. I looked like a bodybuilder. I had never lift weights ever in my life, but... So doc- fibromyalgia fit best. Fibromyalgia Certainly fit best, but it two. definitely mimics lupus and MS. Hmm. You talked about... Your age being a contributor to how you think people perceived your pain. Mm -hmm. Do you think that being a woman, do you think that being a black woman might have influenced how people treated you, how medical professionals treated you? Um, Certainly. Also, my background, because I received Medicaid, I feel like the quality of care that I got played a part in that as well. And I only say this because in my experience, there were times where I would go to the doctor and the doctor would completely dismiss me. I had a doctor ask me as soon as he walked through the door, do you just want drugs? There was no what's your background story, nothing. The first thing he said to me is, do you just want drugs? I cried and I walked out the door because I was like, I'm not being heard. I don't want drugs. And that was a issue in the beginning because I refused all drugs. The reason for that was because they were very quick to give drugs in the beginning mm. and not try to address the problem. You felt like they were addressing perhaps the side effects yes. and not the root of it. Yes. But just to reflect on that interaction with the doctor, that's someone who is fundamentally supposed to be a helper. Yes. And you're immediately met with a circumspect, almost like accusatory tone. Yes. Which I can imagine being so painful. It happened quite often. Um, This was toward like the end, like in the beginning, it was, they were more open to just giving drugs. I recall several times where I would have endless amounts of Percocet Vicodin, codeine, and I never took them. This and was I, before the crackdown, this basically. Was, yeah, this was before the crackdown. Uh-huh. And I told my doctors, I don't want drugs because I come from a family of addicts. My biggest fear is that I will become addicted. So can we please figure out something else? This led you really down a, a very holistic path. Yes. A, a path that, in fact, includes you making your own balms and salves. Yes. What is your pain level today, and what management tools do you have? So my pain level today, um, it's maybe a six or seven. On a one and to ten scale? On a one to ten scale. That sounds kind of high, but for me, like on my scale... 50 is like my pain because I had to learn to adapt to my pain because I was like, I'm not taking medication. So what can I do? So Mm. that pain became a part of my life. 
And what do you do to manage it? Um, now I make my own pain cream, and it's all natural herbs and oils. I also had to learn how to eat because that was never a suggestion going through the hospital. It wasn't like, oh, well, let's check your diet and see if maybe that's contributing. So, you know, throughout my studies, I learned that red meat can trigger fibromyalgia outbreaks. And I stopped eating red meat. I learned that I'm allergic to pork. And that would cause flare-ups. So I stopped eating pork. So I had to learn these things. And these were the sorts of tools you craved. Yes. From the medical community. Yes. Something that might be at the root, but that you had to find out for yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there were times where I would go in there, and because I studied, you know, anatomy and I studied things, I would go in there and I would talk to them in medical terms. There were doctors who actually were offended that I knew medical terms or I spoke to them properly. And they were like, you don't know what you're talking about. Just, you know, talk normal. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I am talking normal. The CDC says fibromyalgia affects about 4 million U.S. adults, fully 2% of the adult population. Uh, It's a condition we wanted to learn more about as part of this series on pain. And Kaj, I floated the idea by you of bringing on a doctor, Mm -hmm. a medical expert, aware, of course, of the trauma that you've experienced in the healthcare system. You said yes to this arrangement, and I'm curious why. Um, I kind of like to hear from a doctor's perspective on what they've learned over these years, because for me, this has been a 26-year battle, Mm. and they've only learned about fibromyalgia in the last, what, 15 years or so? So I suffered for almost 10 or so years in the dark. So it would be great to kind of get a medical professional, you know, to kind of elaborate on some stuff like why. Why? Why. All right, Kosh Barber and I put our questions about fibromyalgia to a leading rheumatologist after a break. This is On Pain from Colorado Matters and CPR News. Jackie Wallace was a football standout who played in Super Bowls until his life was derailed by addiction. Photojournalist Ted Jackson told Jackie's story, and when Jackie disappeared and needed help to recover, Ted refused to let his friend slip through the cracks. You don't tell the person who failed on their diet to give up. No, you say, we'll start again tomorrow. Hear their remarkable story on Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. With support from Lift the Label. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and our series On Pain. I'm Ryan Warner. We are listening to Coloradans who have chronic pain and meeting scientists committed to helping them. Today, our focus is fibromyalgia, a diagnosis that came late but made sense for Kaj Barber of Denver. She shared her saga with us before the break. Now, she and I quiz a medical expert. 
Rheumatologist Dr. Kevin Dean of the University of Colorado is both a clinician and researcher. Dr. Dean, thank you for being with us. Great to be here. Can you give us a working definition of fibromyalgia? Well, I'll try. You've touched on some points. It it is, in some ways, a vague disease. It's been difficult for the medical community to pin down. Our best understanding is that it's a problem with pain pathways in the body that can lead to then abnormal sensation of feeling of pain and some other things that can go along with that, such as fatigue or feeling extra sensation on things that people may feel is normal. I'll use an example here. We all have our intestines move throughout the day. Some of us can feel that is more painful when we have our intestines move, others not. The root of it is we think a pain sensitization or regulation pathway problem. And we give that the name fibromyalgia, um, but then lots of things can, can again come along with that. So is it like a catch-all? I think catch-all is not a, not a bad way to think about it. Um, another term that's also been used now in fibromyalgia is chronic widespread pain, which is another catch-all term, but sort of gets at, I think, what our guests had mentioned. Before, we used to think, oh, you have to have fibromyalgia with these tender points. Now we realize that you may not have those tender points. It may be just a, a broader diffuse pain syndrome that can include headaches, abdominal pain, muscle pain. And Fatigue. so those two terms are now used interchangeably. Yeah, you've got Akash nodding uh, and interjecting fatigue there. Akash, what questions do you have? Go ahead. I guess one of my bigger questions is the mental part of it. So like I was saying in the beginning, it was considered a mental disorder. And I personally was made to see a psychiatrist because of the fibromyalgia, although I had no underlying issues with mental illness. I guess what I want to know is why was that like the main focus of it when it was more of a nerve issue? Yeah, it, it's a good point. And I, I hear you. In, in the past, we, we as a medical community used to wonder or think and, and sometimes act on people with chronic pain and say, oh, it's all in their head mm-hmm. and then kind of go down that route. That sounds like you went down. It's complicated. I don't think we think that much anymore, but there is a bit of a chicken and the egg issue with it because anybody who has chronic pain and all the things that go along with that, poor sleep, other things, actually get depressed and have mental illness, but it's not the cause of it. Right. It's actually a result of the chronic pain. Mm -hmm. So we still will address mental health, but we don't think it's the underlying cause in, in many cases, but rather it's a secondary thing. I definitely would agree with that. It, it becomes challenging then to sort it out. And, and if we can jump back to the cause of this, yeah. we don't really know what causes this pain regulation problem yet. There's growing studies that can utilize things like MRIs of the brain or even collection of spinal fluid, which are not things we would normally do in clinical care. They're all sort of research now. So you can't go out and get a special brain MRI that'll diagnose fibromyalgia. But we can see in folks with fibromyalgia, they do have abnormal pain pathways and responses in the brain, which is a great step forward. Unfortunately, we have not yet developed widely uh, accessible and effective treatments for that. I.e., There's not a new pill that, based on our knowledge, can cure this and make all the pain go away. But hopefully in the near future, as we grow in our understanding of disease, we'll be able to get to that point. Kaja, I'm just curious. 
You've talked about some of the steps you've taken to reduce your pain. Doctor, are there other interventions that people with fibromyalgia might consider to ease their pain? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to a couple things Kaz had mentioned, like some of the medicines, narcotics or opiates like Vicodin, Percocet and whatnot, that sounds like we're prescribed to her. We actually now know we should stay away from those. Those actually can make management of long-term pain syndromes worse. And I think, as you all mentioned, we all now are much more aware of the devastating adverse effects of, of long-term opiates in terms of addiction, overdose, and those types of things. What we do find is sort of roots of our treatments now are physical exercise, muscle toning, and strengthening, which has a lot of effects, uh, including helping to reset the brain pain pathways. If you can envision the runner's high type of effect where mm -hmm. exercise actually helps modulate your own pain systems inside your body, having folks maintain exercise can really help. And Kaj, were you, were, did you have a comment there? Yeah, what's talked about your relationship with movement, Kaj? So I'm not really an active person, uh -huh. but what I did do is I did a lot of Eastern medicine. I did acupuncture and needling, massage therapy, things like that, hydrotherapy, and that all worked wonders. Oh, that's that's great. But I, I do understand what you mean by because the the exercise that was definitely a suggestion to me, and I, I think it's because that adrenaline helps to balance those pain receptors. But I think about endorphins. Yeah. I think about the endocannabinoid system, yes, which is activated. Yes. And I actually yeah. just learned about that oh. just a few <laughs> me, days ago. Me too. It was just in recent months. <laughs> yeah, I just learned about that. I was like, hey. And that actually works for me because my pain cream has CBD in it. Mm. So I was like, look at me learning stuff. But no, as a person with fibromyalgia, when you're being told to exercise, being told to get out of bed sounds excruciating. Mm -hmm. So being told to go do exercise was like the worst suggestion ever. But I did find that water aerobics was very helpful because the water helped to ease the movement on my joints when I was having the joint flare-ups. That buoyancy, but mm -hmm. also that resistance. Yeah, so yeah. I, I definitely understand why exercise would be considered help with the pain. But I can tell you a person who is going through like a really painful bout of fibromyalgia, myalgia, exercise is definitely not something that we want to do. Yeah, it's not what you're getting to that afternoon. Yes. Uh-huh. We've done stories about chronic pain and how it can ultimately lodge, to some extent, in the brain, the use of what's called pain reprocessing therapy, for instance, to treat it. Um, that can also involve medication. But it, it, it's such an interesting balance as we do this series, Doctor, between it's all in your head and maybe some of it is in your head and that that is part of the treatment. How do you, as a physician, kind of balance that? And it's a great point because it depends how you look on that phrase, is it in your head? Mm -hmm. It can be true and addressable versus dismissive. So we want to be careful how we refine that. I myself have used that term and then carefully say, and what I mean by that is that your pain pathways, which reside in your head, need to be addressed. Um, you're not crazy causing pain. We need to address those things. So certainly we have medications that act on these pathways, and that's one of the other core approaches to treating fibromyalgia or, or medications that can act on these pain pathways. 
Some of these medicines are used in psychiatry widely to treat depression because a lot they, they share the same pathways in the brain. Uh, another pathway that's shared across fibromyalgia and, and things like depression is the sleep pathways. And Kaj, I don't know if you've had these, but sleep disturbances and having a night of sleep that doesn't make you feel refreshed the next day is a big yes. part of a lot of folks with fibromyalgia. Yes. And Wait, trying so sleep to address- isn't restful? No. Well, that sucks. And it could be 12, 14 hours of sleep and wake up and you're still drained. Because huh. that sounds exactly like the experience most people with fibromyalgia have. Yeah, you get sleep. You're in bed the number of hours that you should be. But when you wake up, you just don't feel like you got good sleep. So we will work with people to make sure their sleep hygiene is good. And this entails a lot of things about lifestyle, not looking at bright screens before and go to bed and other, other careful things. But medications can help. So one of the mainstays are of fibromyalgia are medicines that can help the sleep pathways improve and help get better, more restorative sleep. So that's another medication approach that's combined with some lifestyle things that can be very beneficial. Well, Kaj, having heard the doctor talk, <laughs> I just wish that there were there was more concrete we could have heard here. It still feels like a bit of a mystery, this disease. Yes. I think I kind of want to know why medications are the go-to to solve some of these things because like I said, I've over the years, I've completely eradicated all medication for sleep, for pain, you know, the depression that comes every now and then. And I've found other avenues to help with those things. I do chamomile, eucalyptus, like there's lots of other natural things that you can do to achieve the same things that you get from medication because I was put on several sleep medications. Mm. They gave me scalaxin and tramadol and so many different things. Like I remember at one point I was taking eight different medications and I was told to take them all at once. So I had a situation where I hallucinated decapitated heads and body parts and I was alone. So it freaked me out. Never took another medication after that again. Doctor, reflect on that for me. Is there an addiction to pharmaceuticals in Western medicine? Yeah, I, you know, I think there is. We use pills for lots of things and some things only pills are going to help or other kinds of medications. And unfortunately, I think sometimes that's applied to fibromyalgia as well. We, we are in the field trying to move away from that as first-line therapy for fibromyalgia and really focus on both making a clear diagnosis as much as we can, and if I can touch right now on this, and to avoid people worrying about things like lupus or MS, which can cause pain but are quite usually quickly eliminated from the diagnoses and then give people a peace of mind. Studies have shown that if you can actually focus in and say you have fibromyalgia and even with our limits and understanding that you don't have lupus, you don't have MS or other kinds of types of things that can cause widespread pain, that can actually in itself be beneficial. And we really then focus after that diagnosis on education, lifestyle changes, including movement and lifestyle approaches to sleep, and then only use medications if it's second line to those things. I, I think that's our general approach, although still that's not always widely implemented and, and sometimes hard to do. As we heard, sometimes it is hard to take the advice to get out and exercise when you feel miserable. So sometimes you'll start with 
pills first and kind of work your way back into the lifestyle things later. So Kaj, I appreciated your comments about some of the things that have helped you, such as the massage therapy or, or the, the rubbing balms on yourself or the even the the pool therapy, because in, in a way we lump all those things as sort of touch therapies where your body is responding to touch to a variety of areas. And that can that has been known to help with pain syndromes, in, huh. in particular water therapy, where you're not in the only in the water moving your body and exercising. That water is touching you all over and helping with your pain responses. Yeah, I kind of had to um, find things that worked for me. Like I said, I wasn't being heard, so I kind of had to advocate for myself and find things that worked best for me. And but that was a decades-long exploration. Oh, yes, yeah. most certainly. And if there's anyone who can take anything away from this, it's know your body and advocate for yourself. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us, sharing the science and sharing your journey, Kaj. Thanks. No, thank you for having me. Dr. Dean, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Kaj Barber of Denver, who has fibromyalgia, and rheumatologist Dr. Kevin Dean of the University of Colorado. They joined us in our series On Pain, and we are collecting all the conversations in this series at cpr.org slash on pain. Finally today, we've chosen another book to read together. Our next pick for Turn the Page is the true story of a Colorado private investigator. It's called Tell Me Everything. The author, Erica Krauss, was assigned to one of the most important rape cases in U.S. history. It tested the scope of Title IX, which prevents discrimination based on sex in education. Up until this point, Title IX was really about jerseys and facilities and that kind of thing. It wasn't ever about sexual assault. Uh, this is the first ever college sexual assault Title IX case. And it changed law to say Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Title IX also applies to actual protection of women and whether or not they can have the same education as men if they are under threat of sexual assault. Read Krauss's book and then meet the author, like really meet her, because our next Turn the Page is in person the evening of June 10th at LitFest in Denver. Tickets are free and all the details are at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. So again, the book is Tell Me Everything by Erica Krauss. Get your copy and then join us. Here's that URL one more time, cpr.org slash turn the page. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to my colleagues. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Shirkia Wedgworth-Hollowell. This is CPR News and KRCC.